Let's pray. As we were reminded just recently, Lord, we are here to position ourselves to hear from you and help us to not just hear, but um, to just in a tangible way, Lord, that we are in you and you are in us and help us to just have the right relationship with you that you desire for us, for our good. To that end, we ask that your spirit would do what your spirit alone can do. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. So it's great to be here. Today's passage is a simple one. It's just one verse, and I'm going to read that and then just kind of go straight into it. Um, As Eliza shared, I was kind of asked to talk about what has helped me um, in my faith, and so there are like a gazillion things I try to whittle down um, to a few important things. I may ramble a little bit because it is more, uh, I do want to focus on the text, but it is really more about how God has sustained me in my life. And so I do hope that you uh, bear with me if I do go on some rabbit trails here and there. So the text for today is Psalm 119, 105. Your word Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. For those of you that may not be familiar, Psalm 119 is by far the longest chapter in the Bible. I mean, when you start hitting the 100s in the verses, (laughs) you know it's it's long. Um, But Psalm 119, if you had a traditional Bible, if you just kind of opened it, it would land pretty much right in the middle. And Psalm 119 is really all about what, what a gift the scriptures are. And so I do want to talk about how the scriptures, really just reading and meditating and memorizing scriptures has sustained me in my Christian walk. More than anything else, I feel like scripture has been the anchor to my faith. There have been seasons when I, you know, I'm, I'm not a prayer warrior like your traditional prayer warriors. I pray like two hours a day. Um, there were many seasons in my life when I try to pray an hour a day and I, I would probably, if we average that all out, a lot, lot more in my youth, like in college and young adults, I was really challenged to pray an hour a day, and, and I would wake up at like five and try to pray an hour a day. And I, I would honestly say, in hindsight, when all of us calculated, probably about 50 to 60% of that was in sleep. Um, just at least, at least subconsciously, I prayed probably trying, and you just lose track of what you were saying. But Scripture to me has been really a more visible anchor in my life. Not that prayer isn't important, but Scripture has been, and in my later life, um, Scripture has been a door to prayer. Praying the Scripture has really anchored my prayer life later on. So before I talk about the Word of God and the importance of it in our Christian life, I do want to just talk a little bit about why that is so in my life. And it begins with sort of this illustration that I think some of us can relate to, um, we are in extreme drought here in California, and like all of you, I am grateful for this rain. I just wish we didn't get all of it all at once. If, you could, if we could have had it spread out a little bit, it would have been nicer. But with the torrential rainstorms that we've had, um, uh, you know, um, our, you'll, if you live in older, older buildings, what happens? Leaks. And, uh, you know... We live in an older home, and lo and behold, we found two leaks in the kitchen and in the dining room. And uh, we're trying to get it fixed, but when it comes to leaks, there's two ways to address it, right? One is, immediately, what do you do? Well, we ours just put a bucket. Uh, we put a bucket underneath, and 
That's what we did. We put a bucket underneath. But ultimately, if you want to fix that problem moving forward, you have to find the source of the problem. You have to find where the leak is. And I've been told many times by people who are much more handy than I am that roof leaks can be from anywhere. So, you know, even if it's leaking in the kitchen, the leak could be some like 30, 40, 50 feet away in the attic or in another bedroom. But ultimately, if you want to address that fundamental problem of the leak, you have to find a source and patch it up. You can't live life. I mean, you can, but you're never going to solve that problem if you don't know what the source of the problem is. You can always live life, live at home with a bucket catching the rainfall, but at some point, you want to address the main problem, the source, the root of the problem. And when it comes to our Christian faith, we don't often think about what is the root source of our fallenness, right? We think about what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, that he died for our sins, but we don't think about what it is that God came to rectify. What is it that God came to rectify in our life? What is the source of our fallenness? Now, most of us may, we sort of Generally, if you're like me, we tend to focus on the surface or the sort of symptomatic area. So we try to put a bucket under those areas in our life that seem to be not working well. So if you're perpetually, maybe if you're struggling with lying or honesty or integrity or if you're struggling with um, you know, greed or covetousness or whatever your issues may be, ambition, pride, you know, maybe you don't love your neighbor as much as yourself. We tend to focus on those things as the areas that we need to fix. Like, God is really working on my patience. God is really teaching me to love my neighbors. Or we focus on these symptomatic areas. But at the end of the day, that's like putting a bucket under the leak. Because that wasn't the fundamental problem that caused this rift between us and God. So in order to do that, you have to go back to Genesis. And I'm not going to cover that. But if you look at Genesis, the temptation, the temptation was the serpent said to Eve, what was the temptation? Eat this and you will be like God. And the irony of that is that the biblical creation story, the narrative of, of uh, Genesis' account of God's creation, one of the most important elements of that creation narrative is that we are created in the image of God. We were meant to be like God. We were created in the image of God, and, and we can probably unpack that in many ways, but at the end of the day, what God wants us to know is that we were created in his image, and yet the temptation was what? To be like God. So the, the root of our problem with God is that we believe at some point that we will be a better God for ourselves than God himself. And when you think you are better God for you, that means you are a better manager of your life and what is good for you, right, than God is, then all of the problems that we see inherent in this world come from that misbalanced, misappropriated reality of who we are and who God is. To have God be God is a wonderful thing. Now, remember this, when, when the fall happened, God didn't change. It's not like something, it's not like a relationship where, you know, if, if all of a sudden I have a rift with one of you, you know, both of us are affected by that and we're kind of like, it could be both of our faults and we, we could change, we can become defensive or whatever. When, when humanity fell from the grace of God, sin affected us, it didn't affect God. God is, 
immutable. He doesn't change, right? That's one of the comforts of having a God who doesn't change, right? We're not at the whims of, is he mad? Is he, in a good, is he having a good day? God is forever immutable, right? It changed us, and we became confident and we, we bought into this lie that we will be a better God for ourselves. And this reality keeps manifesting itself in thousands of fissures throughout the world. All of the root of sin is ultimately that we as individuals and as humanity believe that we are better at managing being God to ourselves than God is, right? So that's ultimately the problem. And I, I start with that because for me, to get out of that ultimate fundamental break, the, the root of the problem, to get out of that is to get out of my own head, is to be out of my own mind. If my mind and my thinking and my thoughts are ultimately at the root of how I solve my problems, how I live my Christian life, for me, it felt like I'm stuck in that cycle of trying to fix myself. And so I always loved, what I loved about the Bible was it was outside of me. It was written it was uh, passed down. It is concrete. It is the word of God that I can trust. It is God-breathed. And I always felt good knowing that I can get out of myself and go to somewhere else that I can anchor my life on. And that's why the word of God has been such an important. Now, I have to throw a caveat. Even the word of God, you know, it doesn't, it's not an objective kind of a reading. We are all affected by our backgrounds, how we read the Word of God. It's translated. We're not all experts on original language. And then even if we were experts on Hebrew and Aramaic and, and Greek, you know, the, we, don't, we don't speak those languages the way they did. So the context and time makes it all a, a challenging enterprise, okay? So I'm not saying that, you know, when we read the Bible, it's purely objective. We bring a lot into our reading. I, I get that, but... Even at that point, we know that the Word of God stands outside of us. And that, to me, is the reason why I try to anchor myself in that reality. Now, no one, um, so I want to kind of give you three reasons um, why the Word of God has helped me. And these are kind of like applications that you can apply to yourself. But before I do, I just want to remind you, like, um, reading the Word of God is never uh, enough. And the Bible rarely talks about the benefits of reading the Bible. There really isn't. The Bible doesn't say, blessed are those who read the Bible, for they shall be fruitful. It's always blessed are those who what? Meditate. Meditate. It's not reading. Reading is like you read it and you forget it. Meditating is chewing on it. You know, the, the classic illustration is like a cow chewing on his cud, Right? It chews on his cut, digests it, then it brings it up again. I know it sounds kind of gross to us who just do the one-time one digestive thing on the jig. But for cows, they chew on the cut, they bring it back up, they chew some more, go back down, they bring, you know, it's kind of like that idea of really letting the word seep in your life. So I think it's very important for us to both read extensively. Like, I do encourage you, like, if you never read the Bible in its entirety, you know, don't try to run a marathon. Don't try to do it in one day. Don't try to do it in, like, even reading the Bible in a year is challenging. Give yourself time. Give it, like, a, read the Bible in three years or something. So read extensively. Read all through the scriptures, but also focus on a certain verse here and there. Like, focus on one verse. Like, memorize one verse for the week and just let it kind of sit. Let it kind of, 
like, like a cow chewing his cud, just meditate on it because that's really how the word gets into us, okay? So um, how is it that the scriptures have helped me, uh, how God has used the scriptures to help me in my faith? The first is that the scriptures is the way that we get to know who God is. Now, if I were to ask you, what is God's most clear and visible self-expression of who, God, who he is? How do we know God? What is the most clearest example of who God is? It's not the Bible, surprisingly, in a sermon about the Bible. It's not. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He is the embodiment. He is the fullness of God in himself. What Scripture does is it testifies to Jesus, right? Jesus, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and says, you, you search the Scriptures as if the Scriptures, you have life in them. But the Scriptures, they point to me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The Scriptures always point to Christ, and Christ is the fullness of God. So scriptures helps us know God is. It is very impossible to really have a deep relationship knowing who God is apart from seeing Christ through the scriptures. It really is. And so many of us try to live the Christian life without really fully embracing this reality. And getting to know someone is not a chore if you like them. Like it wasn't a, it's not like I dreaded getting to know, oh God, I gotta know these people. And it's like, Got to talk to some of them. Got to meet up with some of them. It's like, oh, I dread it. It's not. It's delightful. I love hearing stories. I still remember hearing, I still remember a lot of the stories some of you shared as I've gotten to know you. Knowing God, if you, if you orient yourself to knowing God, Scripture is just really the, one of the best ways to get to know who God is, and it just becomes a delight in getting to know God is. Idolatry is not worshiping just false idols. Idolatry is not worshiping false gods like money or success or whatever your achievements are or whatever the idols of the day are or false gods or whatever you think of idolatry. Idolatry is also worshiping the true God falsely, right? There's so much about the Bible that teaches us that God needs to be worshiped on his terms, one of the most, one of the stories that I always had the hardest time understanding as a child, and one of the stories that people always have a hard time is there's this story in the Bible of when David first becomes king. David is the like the paradigm, the paragon of what a good king should be. He's the kind of archetype of Christ as king, right? So David becomes king, and then one of the first thing he does as a king is he realizes the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant that has the Ten Commandments and a sample of manna and Aaron's budding staff. He, he, he wants to bring the ark back. It was, it was taken, it was lost during one of their battles and it was taken and he wanted to bring back from the Philistines. So he goes and he gets the ark and he's bringing it back and he's bringing it back on a, on a, there's, on a cart, right? On a cart driven by some animal and it's on the cart and as it's coming, they're all like excited. The cart hits a rock or some bumpy path on the road, and the cart is about to tilt. And some guy, I think his name was Uzziah or Uzziah, he, he, he was like, oh, it's going to fall. So he goes out and tries to brace it, and God strikes him dead. I'm like, oh, my God, that is so mean. He's just trying to help. Like as a kid, I'm like, oh, my gosh, he's just trying to help. It was going to fall. 
He didn't mean anything by it. He was just trying to help. And it just boggled my mind. But why? Because the ark wasn't meant to be carried by a cart. It was meant to be carried by the priests, the Levites. When Jesus met with the Samaritan woman, it says, a time has now come when the true worshipers of God will worship not on this mountain or that mountain. It's not the formality of where you worship, but they will worship in spirit and in truth. It's to worship the true God falsely is also idolatry. And so more than anything, meditating on scriptures, seeing Christ in the scriptures helps us. And reading scriptures in community helps us to see who God is. Do you know who God is? Because if we don't know who God is in Christ, it is really hard to live the Christian life. The second way that scriptures helped me, and, there's, and I'm not going like, to um, give you a lot of textual kind of text-proofing these points, but you could kind of, these, these are in the scriptures. These are scriptural principles, and I want you to test it. Go and look for these. But scriptures helps us interpret our life correctly. There, there's two parts of life that I think that, that there are two things that consist of life for us. One is interpreting what's happening and then acting on it, right? So if you're my, any, any MBTI fans, Maya Briggs fans, if you're an MBTI fan, you know what the second letter is? The second letter in that four letter is how we interpret the world, whether you're a, you know, intuitive or you're a thinker, right? Or sensing, I'm sorry, I, I, intuitive or sensing. And then the sec- third letter is how you act, right? Whether you're a feeler or a thinker, F or T, right? So in some ways, scriptures helps us interpret life. Scriptures is the grid by which we interpret life. And it's so important to, help, to know this. Remember when Jesus is walking, Jesus is walking with disciples. And it's kind of neat, like Jesus walking with his 12 disciples. He's just walking, walking. He's a walker. Probably did more than 10,000 steps a day easily. He's walking, he's walking. And they see a blind person, right? Blind person, uh, blind from birth. And he's begging for alms. I mean, how else are you going to live if you're blind back in the days, right? And and the disciples ask Jesus. They interpret through what they know. They know that if someone is born blind, it is because they must have offended God or did something wrong. So they ask Jesus, they ask, Rabbi, is it this person's sin or the sin of his parents that made him to be born blind? And Jesus said, eh, neither of those. This man is born blind so that you may see the glory of God. How you interpret life, how you interpret what's happening, Right? So how do you interpret difficulties when you lose a job? Um, I serve at a church where the average age is quite higher than you all. So there's a lot of, um, uh, I, I, I visit and I do pastoral care for a lot of people who are in hospice or who pass away. I just did my first memorial service last week. When your body is breaking down, and the quality of life goes down, and you're facing the unknown of death. How do you interpret what's going on? When something good happens, how do you interpret what's going on? It's so easy to attribute success to our own talents and good fortune or whatever you may attribute it to. How do we interpret life? And scriptures, more than anything else, helps us to interpret things correctly. It helps us to make sense of of difficult times. It, makes, it helps us make sense of struggles and trials, but it also helps us have the right mindset towards 
blessings in life. Like, for example, like Deuteronomy and, and even the New Testament tells us that it is so much easier for, those, for us to fall away from God when things are plentiful. That's a fact of life. That is a fact of life. So I can, I can almost guarantee you that I, I know the lottery's been over like a billion dollars like a bunch of times. It's like, now it seems like, because the odds are like, I mean, it's crazy. It's like one in 300 million, right? There's more, there's better chance that I, I play for the Lakers than, you know, winning the lotto. I'm almost, I can almost guarantee, not, not 100%, I'm almost guarantee you that for, for us as believers, like, I'll even limit it to this group, like, just all of us in here, including myself, if you win the lotto, there's a high degree of probability it will destroy your faith. It will. I, I'm, I, but do I still want to win? Yeah, I do. I'm like, God, can I, can I have it both ways? Can I win a smaller jackpot? I'll play the I won't play the mega millions, I'll play the super lot. That's a smaller jackpot, a better odds, right? I st- my heart yearns for it. My heart wants the stability and comfort that money can bring. But God knows that Deuteronomy says, when you go into the promised land and the crops are abundant and you've conquered all your enemies and you are at peace, it says, be careful lest your heart say, we've accomplished this. And you forget God. It is, Christians do so much worse in times of good than in times of suffering and trials. But if you didn't know that about God and and, and the way the scripture describes it, we would pursue things that we may not want to pursue, right? Um, So it helps us interpret light. It helps us interpret what's going on in the world. It helps us interpret our difficulties. And the last thing is it helps shape our ethics, values, and how we actually live our lives, right? Ultimately, it's not just interpreting, it's how do we respond? What, where, where are our values shaped? For example, like, why do we value service? Why do we value humility, right? Why do we value um, peaceability? Or why do we value faithfulness? Why do we value the things we value? Why do we make the decisions we make? How do we, you know, where is our, what is the root of our ethics? What is the foundation of our ethics? What is the foundation of our decision making? Through what lenses do we make decisions? Right? Everything from, is this the right person to marry? Is this the right job to pursue? Is this the right place to live? Is this the right way to set up my budget? You know, all of these decisions, the Bible doesn't tell you how to do it. It doesn't say like in, you know, John chapter 3, verse 4, uh, Janet, you shall, thou shall marry, you know, Janet, you shall marry this person. I'm like, oh, well, that's easy. Just got to find this person, right? It doesn't work that way. It's more, it shapes our ethics, our values, our ideals. So we're not always looking for someone who's, you know, in a relationship, we're not only trying to align ourselves with the strong and the powerful and the haves, but we're also aligning ourselves with the marginalized, right? Why? What do they bring to the table? Jesus says, why, do, why befriend those who are weak and impoverished and on the outskirts and rejected? What are they going to bring to you? Jesus says, that's the point. They don't bring anything to you. They're not going to invite you back. 
Because when you do that because God has loved you, your reward is in heaven. What good is it if you love those who love you? Do not even the pagans do that? So it helps us in our decision-making. Who do we relate to? Where do we put our investments? What do we, how do we live? So scripture in those ways, in these three ways, um, for me is helping know who God is, helping me interpret life, and then helping me make the right decisions that are in alignment with who God is, is how the scripture has shaped me and sustained me through my life. Now, I'm going to share these random principles of life just because um, I want to. Um, there were, there were, uh, there's like 20 of these I came up with, like, oh, principles of life. I, I just random. These aren't even the three most important. They're just three that I just wanted to include for whatever reasons, okay? So I'm going to have these to you. So you got the first part. That's a sermon. This is just kind of like bonus edition. Like it's, the, it's a little trailer after the credits or something, all right? Uh, some principles of life. Um, just know this about faith. Faith is always responsive, Okay, so the whole enterprise of Christian faith is not taking initiative. It's always responding to what God has done. And I was so reminded of this because in my, in my earlier worship, when I was worshiping God, we sang this hymn about God's patience with me. And it just almost like, it just reminded me like, God, I, how many times have I failed you in the same way? Like, holy, I want to curse, but like, holy cow. How many times have I let you down, and yet you are so patient with me. And then my next right there is like, God, I want to be patient because you are patient. Christian life is always reflexive and responsive. We forgive because God forgave us. We humble ourselves because Christ humbled himself. We love because he first loved us. We follow because God calls. We obey because he commands. Don't try to take initiative in Christian life. Christian life is to be reflexive. So the biggest thing you can do is to experience God in your life. You can't, it's so hard to forgive others when you haven't been forgiven. It's so hard to love others when you don't feel the love of God. Okay, so number one, always know Christian, Christianity is about second. It's not, it's not, it's not the, uh, it's not the we, we're not the primary cause. We're always a secondary. We are always responding to what God has done. And I think sometimes in our individualistic Western culture, we always got to be the kind of the take charge and go out. No, it's the best thing to do is let God bless you and let that turn into blessing for others, Okay. The second thing about Christian life, this is really important, and I wish I could show you this video, but there's this, there's this and I actually have it in my portfolio of illustration, but there's this video of, uh, from a show called I Love Lucy. Any I Love Lucy fans? Is there anyone, okay, let me ask this. Anyone not know who I Love Lucy is? Any young folks? Okay, my kids probably don't. Um, there's one episode of I Love Lucy where she's with her friend, Ethel, and they're, they're in a candy line, right? Do you guys remember this? And chocolate boxes are coming, and they got to, like, sort them a certain way. So they got the hats, and they're standing. And at first, they're coming kind of slow. So they're like, oh, and they're kind of chew on, like, oh, and you're doing it. And then you can do it. And then what happens? It starts, like, coming fast. And they're, like, you know, throwing it in their hats or, like, shoving it in their mouth, putting it in their aprons. And it's just coming fast, and they're messing up on everything. I feel like... Um, 
if you try to live life by trying to make the right decisions all the time, it's kind of like Lucien Ethel. You're never going to be able to make the right decisions all the time. The better way to live life is to develop godly habits. We, the way God created us as, as human beings, we are driven by habits. Who we are is defined by our habits. And it's not just the Christian faith. You can read a lot of social science books about the importance of habits, anchor habits. Who we are is what we do reflexively, right? It's not like someone slaps you and you go like, okay, what's going on? Uh, My cheek hurts. I'm angry. Um, This person's pissing me off. How should I respond? It doesn't work like that. It's all reflexive. If you have learned to be patient, if you've learned to pursue righteousness, if you trained yourself to be a certain way, it will shape who you are. You're not always going to be the one. When you drive, when you first learn to drive, it's nightmare. And not only did I learn how to, okay, I, I, for me, driving was pretty instinctual. I, I started driving when I was like 14, sneaking out the parent's car. But the difficulty of driving really hit on me when I had to teach my daughter how to drive. And I hope that she doesn't listen to this, but that's a whole different, like, or teaching my sisters how to drive stick shift. Like, when you're learning to drive stick shift, it's like 40 different things in your head. Clutch down, shift up, gas, let go of this slowly, and it's just like, you got to do 40 different things, right? But when you get into the habit, do you ever even think about what you're doing? You don't. Life has to be like that. Most of us still try to be a good Christian by, like, picking and choosing when we do good things. No, develop the habits that make you who you're meant to be as a child of God. Develop the godly habits. And I have good news and bad news. Do you want the good news first or the bad news? Go ahead. I'll tell you. What? You want the bad news? The bad news is a lot of your habits should have been developed years ago. You're really, really late if you're, and I'm super late, but I know you're not all spring chicks either, right? Some of you are, most of you, many of you, all of you are late to this game. Some of this should have been done when you're children, as the Bible teaches us. Train a child in the way they should go, and they will not depart from it when they're old, right? So for me, like, my Bible memory habits came when I was very young. My parents forced me. I hated it. But now it's like the greatest gift. I thank my parents for those tortuous days of memorizing the Bible, but it's such a blessing. But the good news is, is what? It's not too late. You can, it's, you're in a much better position than I am. I'm going to be 53 this year. <sighs> Sometimes I don't even want to try to form godly habit. I'm like, I'm a lost case God, but I, I, I'm still trying. You're in better shape than me, not in the most optimal shape, but better. Form godly habits. Pick one habit this year that you're going to invest in, okay? Just one. And focus on it. And the last thing I want to share is know the seasons of life. Your faith isn't going to be static. You're not going to believe and relate to God in the same way. Okay? When I was a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. 
You know where that's from? 1 Corinthians 13 on the chapter on love. There's so much in the Bible about knowing the seasons of life when you're young and when you're old. When you're old, you, you don't have appetites like you did when you were young. You know what it is to live with a grandiose appetite? Some of you are in that stage, you should say yes. When you're in your 20s and 30s, or 30s you're starting to, eh, 20s. You're like, 20s is like, man, the world is my oyster. I'm going to just, you have appetites. That's when you can eat like, oh, you can eat sushi like every day and you're so good. You can eat, oh, you can eat Korean barbecue day after day and it's like, I'm good. Like when you're 53, it's like, eh, not really. Don't have the appetite. Know the seasons of life. Know the seasons of life because it's not always going to be the same. When you're a child, you relate to God in a certain way. Your faith means a certain thing. When you're in hospice, you relate to God a certain way. When your body breaks down, you relate to God. And everything in between, God says, know the seasons. So um, one of the ways that a lot of people, one of the trends that's coming back, and, and um, it's called the rule of life, that's been becoming popular again. There's an author, I think in Portland, John Mark Comer, who's made this popular amongst evangelicals. And, but the rule of life has been around for centuries, uh, practiced by Christians. It's kind of living by these set of rules for life that shape you. And you now there's a Benedictine rule of life that's also kind of made a return in favor. So I, I kind of want to encourage you through scripture, just kind of develop a rule of life that's going to help define the rest of your time with God, right, here on earth. And I want to read you one that um, I've read when I was in college. I remember reading this like when I was 19 or 20 that really challenged me and didn't challenge me enough to make my own rule of life and live by it, but it did challenge me and I want to share it with you. And it's written by Amy Carmichael, one of my favorite Christian heroes of all time. She uh, served in India um, helping uh, children who were dedicated to the temple a prostitution, saving them and, and, and caring for them. And she wrote this called Vow of the Sisters of Common Life. And I want to end today's message with this. Vow of the Sisters of Common Life. My vow, whatever thou sayest unto me, by thy grace I will do it. My constraint, thy love, O Christ my Lord. My confidence, thou art able to keep that which I have committed unto thee. My joy, to do thy will, O God. My discipline, that which I would not choose, but which thy love appoints. My prayer, conform my will to thine. My motto, love to live, live to love. My portion, the Lord is a portion of mine inheritance. Amen.